Well, welcome again as we continue our worship this morning. Today we're continuing our study in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, 17 through 32. As you know, this is part three of uh, the walk of holiness. This is the third sermon in this passage of Scripture. You might be asking, along with me, really, why we take so much time looking at each section. My answer is, for me personally, it's because it takes me a long time to grasp everything and then give it to you. But, but, there's, another, there's a better answer than that. And that is because we're committed to the sequential exposition of Scripture. We preach verse by verse considering every phrase. We're, we're careful to consider the meaning of each passage without losing sight of its overall context. And believe me, beloved, that takes a lot of work. But I'm not just talking about work on my part. It takes a lot of work on your part. As you listen and as you work to grasp uh, the meaning of the, of the text, as you work through, as I try to communicate and teach, you have to work hard to understand. So as a church, we're committed to this. And at times, it's going to be tough sledding. We also believe, uh, we preach an expository preaching, so we, we also believe that the author's point of the text should form the point of the sermon. So here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, you should be able to clearly see the walk of holiness. Matter of fact, in today's passage, Apostle Paul calls the Ephesian church to walk in holiness. Therefore, we are considering the holy walk. This subject, by the way, I believe happens to be incredibly important for our church. It's incredibly practical and formative for us. So we're going to take, and we are taking our time to carefully consider the truth of God's Word. When you deal with holiness, and you deal with this as a subject, on one side of the coin, so it's a, there's a coin here, on one side of the coin you have legalism. And you've heard of those churches that are known for their denouncement of sin. They get up there and they say, Thus saith the Lord, this is what it is, but they have no love. We even saw it today in, in 2 Timothy, that we are to correct those in opposition, but we are to do so with gentleness, right? So it's, it, there's, there's both sides of it. There's both sides of it. Have you ever noticed that these churches that pound the pulpit about sin tend to have their pet sins that they constantly preach against, but then they let go certain sins, maybe gluttony or, or things that are, that are whitewashed that we think are okay sins, but they preach against other certain sins. They, then you have churches that are known for their love. They're permissive when it comes to sinful behavior. It's all about peace and love, baby. They are accepting of all lifestyles. So which is it? Is it holiness or love? Is it pound the pulpit about sin, or is it we're just open to everything? Well, we're not open to everything. We can't be open to everything. God's Word doesn't allow that. God's law does not allow that. But is it holiness or love? But, beloved, the Bible says it's both. They're connected to one another. They're two sides of the same coin. 
And we have to be careful not to fall one way or the other. We understand holiness in the context of love. I believe the current passage will help us better understand this connection uh, between the call to holiness and the call to love one another. Love for God and love for our neighbor. Let me pray for our sermon and then we'll get started. Our gracious Lord and Father, we thank you for this time of being able to delve into your word, to preach your word. Father, may we rightly divide it. Lord, may I preach with clarity and communicate these truths, these wonderful truths, clearly. Father, we thank you for this gift of being able to gather together to do so. In Christ's name, amen. In Matthew chapter 12, Matthew records an argument regarding Sabbath observance between Jesus and the Pharisees. In Matthew 12, 1 and 2, our Lord and His disciples were going through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples became, Jesus' disciples became hungry and they began to pick the heads of grain to eat them. According to the Pharisees, This was an unlawful act on the Sabbath. How dare you do work by picking grain, the heads of grain, on the Sabbath? In verses 3 through 7, this is chapter 12, 3 through 7, Jesus gave the Pharisees a couple of examples where Sabbath rules were broken, at least Sabbath rules according to the Pharisees. Yet he said that God was not offended. You see, God's law. God's law never imposed a Sabbath restriction on things done out of necessity, such as the disciples being hungry, or service to God, or as an act of mercy. Ultimately, Jesus demonstrated that Sabbath observance was more about the heart than it was about legalistically obeying a set of rules. In chapter 12, verse 8, Jesus declared that He was the one. He Himself was the one who ruled over the Sabbath. Therefore, he alone controlled the expectation of Sabbath observance. After this incident, the Pharisees tried to bait Jesus into breaking the Sabbath again by healing a man whose hand was withered. They asked him on this occasion if it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath. Isn't that crazy? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? In In verse 11, he said to them, Just listen, you you can turn there if you'd like. But he said to them, he said, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable than than is a man than a sheep? Then So then it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and they conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. You see, these Pharisees, these Pharisees had their own rules set up. They thought that they they believed they were serving God, but they were actually dead in their trespasses and sins. You see, they had no way of pleasing God. Their minds and their hearts were completely blinded by the God of this world. They were so twisted that they were seeking to destroy the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, their rejection of their Messiah, Jesus, would pave the way for the gospel to be extended to us, the Gentiles. 
We see this, if you are in Matthew 12, you see this in verse 21. And it says, in his name, And in His name the Gentiles will have hope, or will hope. Shockingly, the God's chosen people, the Israelites, had rejected. Had rejected their Messiah. They rejected Him because they were trying to find salvation in the works of the law. But in doing so, it's important for us to see, in doing so they twisted God's law beyond recognition and completely misunderstood, they completely missed the point of the law. Back in Matthew 12, 22, Jesus healed another man in the presence of the Pharisees. Astonishingly, they attributed this healing to the work of Satan. And as such, they blasphemed the Holy Spirit In other words, they said that the work of the Holy Spirit was actually Satan's work, which made them commit the what Jesus calls the unpardonable sin. You know, people worry about whether or not they have they have committed the unpardonable sin. Well, unless you've seen the Holy Spirit's work performed by Jesus as a miracle and attributed that to Satan, then you probably haven't committed the unpardonable sin. After these things, Jesus uses a parable to describe the generation who rejected them, rejected him. Listen to Matthew 12, 43-45. This is very interesting. He says this, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, and pass, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, <coughs> it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes along and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and they live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse worse than the first. That is the way, this is important, that is the way it will also be with this evil generation. In effect, what Jesus is saying is, you tried to be saved by your own power and keeping the law, but you missed the whole point of it, and the more you try to keep the law that you've twisted, the more you'll fail. And you will keep failing because you've misunderstood my heart. And the the state that you'll be in at the last will be worse than the first. The more you try, the worse it's going to get, the more damnation you're heaping upon yourselves. Now, church, it would be easy for us to look at these men, these Pharisees, and wonder how they could get it so wrong. But we should be very aware. We should be very aware as church, as a church that this is a very well-trod path. It is a path that's wide. If we're not careful, we can easily go down the same path to destruction by missing God's grace. Get this by missing God's grace while trying to keep His law. We find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 4, specifically, as I've said, in verses 17 through 32, where Paul gives two main commands for the walk of holiness. We've looked at the first one, you are not to live as the heathen ones, you're not to walk as the Gentiles walk. That's verses 17 through 19. I'll only remind you that Paul was warning them warning the church at Ephesus not to fall back into their former lives. They had lived in the lust of their flesh and had walked according to the ways of this world. <coughs> God had raised them up 
and He had seated them in the heavenlies and made them new creations in Christ. Going back to their former lifestyles of sin would have betrayed their new position in Christ. And in verses 17-19, He warned them not to do this. Now in verses 20-32, through we'll see Paul's positive command. You are to live as the holy ones. Now it's interesting, I've gone back and forth on this. I've gone back and forth that really, really I could say you are to live as the Holy One, which would be Christ, live as Christ, might be a better fit. <clears throat> but the point is, is that we are to live in holiness. Now first we saw last week that we are to walk in conformance with the truth. <clears throat> in verse 20 he says, Paul writes, you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as the truth is in Jesus. Paul had personally, we learned last week, Paul had personally taught the church at Ephesus. He knew the content. He personally understood the content of their teaching. He had taught the church Jesus' Jesus's commands, just as Jesus had directed the church to do in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Make no mistake, Jesus commands His people to live holy and righteous lives. As we also discussed, Jesus calls His church to love Him and to love our neighbors. If we live in sin, now we want to, this is the connection I want you to see. If we live in sin and we participate in the deeds of darkness, we do not love God and we cannot love others. Let me say that again. If we live in sin and we participate in the deeds of darkness, we do not love God, and we cannot love others. The Apostle John says in 1 John 1, 5-6, he says, This is the message we heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Now, he said, then he says this in verse 6, If we say we have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So therefore, we must recognize the tie between walking in holiness, love for God, and love for our neighbor. There is a direct tie between the three. If we don't see this crucial connection, then we're in danger of falling into the same sin as the Pharisees. As a church, as God's people, it's critical we get this right. We must understand the whole truth and nothing but the truth. The Pharisees thought that they could short-circuit the process with their cheat codes. In other words, they changed the rules of the game in, in favor of themselves. They gamed the system, but it didn't work. They did this so that they could live the way they wanted under the guise of holiness and righteousness, but they were neither holy nor righteous. They missed the whole point. Now, we should recognize that Paul, well, we should recognize that the Pharisees missed the point, but they were, the point was there the whole time. It was there in the Old Testament. And we should also recognize that Paul would have primarily taught the church from, uh, at Ephesus from the Old Testament. So let's look at a couple of Old Testament passages and try to see and understand the point of the law from an Old Testament perspective. Turn to Leviticus 19. In Leviticus 19.2, the Lord commanded the Israelites 
you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So we see right off the bat, we see the point of this chapter. It's about holiness. Then in the style of Leviticus, he follows up with a bunch of laws for them to follow. Well, kind of. He actually told them to keep the Sabbath and not make idols for themselves. What does this correspond to? Love for God, right? God wanted them to love Him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then he gives in 1990, he gives a list of laws. Now I would say, and I would argue, that these laws are incredibly instructive to us. Again, I want you to recognize the connection between walking in holiness, love for God, and love for neighbor. Look at 19.9. It says this, Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall lead them for who? For the needy. And for the stranger, I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are to remain with you all night until morning, or not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall revere your God, I am the Lord. Now stop right there. I want you to notice that in verses 12 and 14, reverence for God and love for neighbor are directly connected. When we swear falsely by God's name, we profane His name, right? But we also lie to our neighbor. And that hurts our neighbor when we do so. When, when you curse a deaf man who cannot hear, who hears it? Who hears it? God does. God does. This reminds me of the old riddle. When a tree falls in the woods with no one to hear it, does it make a sound? Does it make a sound? Yes, it does. You know why it makes a sound? Because God can hear it. God doesn't miss anything. On a more sobering note, church, God also hears you when you spread malicious rumors and gossip about others. He hears those things. It's, it's directly connected to Him. You can't love God and love neighbor if you're not walking in holiness. He also sees you when you play stumbling blocks in front of the brethren. Let's keep going. Verse 15. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You know, stop right there, James chapter 2. Now, you're not to walk in partiality. You're not to judge with partiality. There's a direct connection here that James is clearly referring to Leviticus 19 when he says those things. Verse 16, You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You shall sure, you may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. 
You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The point is, is that this was here all the time. It didn't take Jesus to come for them to, to know this. Jesus tells them this. Jesus says the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. It, but it didn't take him to say this because he's already said it in Leviticus 19. Well, but all these commands clearly show God's heart. His heart for man. God requires man to love him by obeying him and to love their fellow man by truly, truly caring for him. Micah 6 8, right? Micah 6 8 gives us the same requirement. He doesn't want our empty sacrifices, He doesn't want us to just rotely follow His law. He wants us to do it with our hearts. He wants us to understand the point of the law. Micah 6 8, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That is the point of the law. That's the point. Now back in Ephesians 4. <clears throat> the truth of God's Word is not changed. He still commands holiness to be lived out in love for Him and in our love for others. Let me say that again. He still commands holiness to be lived out in our love for Him and in our love for others. We are to walk in, the, in conformance with the truth of God's Word. And as we do so, if we're truly doing it from the heart, it will bear itself out in our love for Him and our love for others. Let's look at the second requirement under the command to live as holy ones. You are to walk in, congruent, in congruity with renewal. Look at verses. Look at your text in chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. I'm just going to tell you right now that these are some very difficult verses to understand. The grammar here is incredibly difficult. At the heart of these verses are three infinitives, which we have to understand in order to interpret the meaning of this passage. These three infinitives are the word translated lay aside in verse 22. So we're back in Ephesians 4.22 if you haven't caught back up. The word translated be renewed and the word translated put on. Those are three infinitives if you are a grammar person infinitives in the text and we need to understand how these words function in order to grasp Paul's point now most most the of most exegetes would agree that these words relate back to the content of Paul's teaching in verse 20 so let me read let me read verse 22 to 24 that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in your mind, in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. So 
the main thing that we need to understand or grasp in this passage is how Paul is using, how he is using these infinitives. Now, the main question is whether these verses are a command, such as you were taught that you are to put off the old person and put on the new person, or if they are describing new life in Christ. Said another way, you have put off the old person and you have put on the new person. If they are imperatives, then we are actively working to put off the old person and to put on the new person. If they are descriptions of our new lives in Christ, then we have already put off the old and put on the new at salvation. Therefore, we are to live according to that, that glorious truth. Now, as I consider the grammar, as I look at these infinitives and I look at the tense and all the stuff that goes into it, I have to tell you it is very difficult to make a conclusion. But, but we have some other means to decipher Paul's point. You may recall that when you became a Christian, you were what? You were placed in Christ. Now that is a positional truth. We've talked about that. You have been raised up and you have been seated with Him in the heavenlies. That's Ephesians chapter 2, 6. You have been made into a new creation, a new creation in Christ. Again, these are positional truths, but being in Christ, we have to understand, also has practical implications for our walk in Christ. The question is, which perspective is Paul coming at in these verses? We need to recognize then, that the content of Paul's, we need to recognize the content of Paul's teaching to understand his point in these verses, verses 22 to 24. Now, I think, I believe that we should be able to work our way backwards in this book to see this. By now, I think we should be fairly familiar with Paul's method of instruction. In most cases, if not all, he gives the foundational doctrinal truths then he gives practical applications. You've heard it said, and I've said it before, that he taught the doctrinal truths in the first three chapters of this letter. And he taught, or is teaching, application of those truths in the final three chapters. Now, that's generally true. He has a similar pattern in Romans. So what doctrinal truths did Paul teach to the Ephesians in the first three chapters? Well, he taught them positional truths right positional truths the father has chosen to save us from the foundation of the world we have been redeemed and forgiven through the blood of the son we have been sealed and secured by the holy spirit we have been raised up and seated in the heavenlies in christ these are positional truths that is the content of paul's teaching of the ephesians said another way this fits with a description of our new life in Christ, that we have put off the old person and that we have put on the new person. We are no longer Jew or Gentile, but we've been made into a new creation. Now, there's three reasons I go this way. So, just to make sure you understand, I go with that I think this is a description of our life in Christ as a new creation. 
that we have put off the old person and we have put on the new person. Now, there's three reasons I go in that way. First, we have seen that this fits with Paul's pattern of teaching. He gives positional truths, then he gives practical application. In this case, verses 20-24 are the positional truths. We have, this has, this has already occurred at salvation. Then if you look down in verses 25 through 32, you'll see the practical outworking of these truths. In this case, if Paul doesn't emphasize the positional truth that we have done these things, then he runs the risk of falling into legalism as he gives a laundry list of commands in 25 through 32. In other words, said another way, like the Pharisees, he would be putting an emphasis on rule-keeping, giving the impression that keeping a set of rules leads to holiness. Do you understand that? If he, if he just jumps into a list of commands, if he just, let's look at 25-32. Lay aside falsehood, speak truth to one another, uh, be angry, yet do not sin, do not give the devil an opportunity, he who steals must steal no longer. If he jumps into those truths, or those, those rules, then, I, then in order to be holy, I just follow those rules, right? That's not how it works. That's not what Paul's point is, I don't believe. He doesn't do that. He gives the foundational proposition, our new life in Christ, then he gives the implications of this truth. And in doing so, he avoids the pitfall of teaching legalism to the church. John MacArthur helps us understand this nuance with the following quote. He says this. Sorry. Siri, Siri wants to get her part in. Here's what John MacArthur says. It is important to note that Paul is not exhorting believers to do these things. These three infinitives describe the saving truth in Jesus and are not imperatives directed to Christians. They are done at the point of conversion and are mentioned here only as a reminder of the reality of that experience. You have, you have in fact, at salvation, you have in fact put away the old man and you have put on the new man. Now, I said there was three reasons that I take this view. Second, we have a parallel passage, which I would argue sheds light on the meaning of our passage in Ephesians. Now, this isn't my first reasoning. It's my second. But if you turn to Colossians chapter 3, I want to read through this passage and make comment. Colossians 3, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, you have been raised up with Christ. Now, where have we heard that before? That's Ephesians chapter 2, right? Keep seeking the things above... Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of, the, of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. Now, what do we see here? We see positional truth. You have been raised up and seated at the right hand of God. This leads to practical application. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. Now, let's keep going. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Verse 4, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you will also be revealed with Him in glory. Again, again, Paul gives the positional truths. Positional truth is that you have died and your life is now in Christ. 
And Christ, who is our life, he will reveal, we will be revealed with him in glory. Now he's going to apply them. Look at verse 5. Because of this truth, because of who you are in Christ, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked you when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. You see, stopping right there, you see that Paul gives the positional truth and then he gives the application of it. He says, because of who you are in Christ, because of who Christ has made you, this is how your life should look. This is how you should react. Now in verse 9, we get to the parallel language with our passage in Ephesians. He says, do not lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. It's clear. These are positional truths. You have laid aside the old self with its legal evil practices, and you have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. This fits with our current passage in Ephesians, and I think helps shed light on its meaning. Let me give you a third reason I believe Paul is talking about positional truths. And I think this is important for us to grasp. As Christians, we don't, we aren't the old man and the new man at the same time. We're not. We have been made new. We are completely new. We are holy, positionally. We, we are that. It's already happened. If you are in Christ, you have been sanctified. I used this quote a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's important here. Again, John MacArthur says, Now I've heard a lot of people teach that when you become a Christian, God gives you something new. You still have your old nature. Your old sin nature is still there and so forth. But God gives you something new. So he adds to it, right? According to the Word of God, you are new. It isn't just a matter of addition. It's a matter of transformation. You are completely different. If you are in Christ, you have been transformed. You've been made new. Therefore, you, as a new creation, are to act in congruity with this new man. You should act like the new man that you are. And I truly think that this is Paul's thrust in Ephesians 4, 20-24. I know that some would disagree, and that's okay. It's a difficult call. But with that as a backdrop, let's look more closely at these verses. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with with the lust of deceit. Notice that the translators here, the, the NAS, actually used the imperatives in the text. But I believe the 
Holman Christian Standard Bible best capture, captures Paul point, Paul's point. It says this, You took off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. In other, way, other words, you have put away the old self, the old man. This is a done deal. The, the, that man was corrupted. It had its evil desires, its, its deceitful desires. This fits with, with Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, where it says, You formerly lived in the lust of your flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. And now you have been raised up and seated in the heavenlies in Christ. It is God who's done this work. It is God who put, that, put away that old man, even though he uses the language that we've done it. It's God who's done it through us. God accomplished this at salvation. He is the one who has made you into this new creation. Look back at your text in verse 23. The NAS says and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Again, I think the Holman Christian Standard Bible gets it better. It says in verse 23, you are being renewed in the spirit of your minds. As I... As I have argued, putting off the old man and putting on the new man is a completed act that occurs at salvation. But I would also argue that the renewing of the mind is an ongoing process in the life of the believer. The grammar supports this this interpretation. In, In contrast to the depraved, reprobate mind of the unregenerate person, which we studied in verses 17 through 19, the Christian is continually renewed in the spirit of his mind. You might recall we read Colossians 3.10 that said that you are being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created us. This, this renewal brings about a state where there is no, there's no human distinctions, but where Christ is all in all. Now, we need to be clear that Paul is referring to the spirit of the human mind, not the Holy Spirit. Though it is by the Spirit of God that we are being renewed. We have to understand that salvation relates to the mind, which is the center of our thought and our understanding and our belief, as well as a motive and action. Therefore, it is our mind which is renewed at salvation. But we have to understand that, that it's this process that it continues through the rest of our lives. It'd be nice. I, I would love this. If we could have the fullness of truth downloaded at salvation, right? You just become a Christian. Okay, I'm a Christian now. Can I get that download cable? You got a port in the back of your head. You plug that bad boy in and, and we hit a few buttons. You know, Omar hits a few buttons and downloads all the truth of, of God's word to you. That's not how it works, is it? When we become believers, when we become Christians, we're given the ability, we're renewed in the sense that we're given the ability to understand the truths of God's word. We're given that ability. I mean, we're, we've been given the mind of Christ, right? But we're not given full knowledge and renewal. This is a process that takes over, takes, occurs over time. Uh, John MacArthur again explains this, explains this action. He says, when a person becomes a Christian, God initially renews his mind, giving it a completely new spiritual and moral capability. 
a capability, he says, that the most brilliant and educated mind apart from Christ can never, never achieve. So, so let's stop right there in that quote. Make sure we all understand that God does renew us. God does give us an ability to understand spiritual things. God does give us the ability to understand Him. And it, it is a capability that the most brilliant person can't do on their own. They can't get this on their own. Then he goes on to say, This renewal continues through the life or through the believer's life as he is obedient to the word and the will of God. The process is not a one time accomplishment, but the continual work of the Spirit in the child of God. Then he, then he goes on to say this. So, so let's make sure we get the picture. God gives us, changes us, renews us so that we can understand, but then that process continues over the lifetime. It's a continual work. Then he says this. Our resources are God's Word and prayer. It is through these means that we gain the mind of Christ. And it is through that mind that we live the life of Christ, end quote. So that's the process that he goes through. He doesn't just plug in the download cable and we get that all those truths that we need. We have to live that process, but we're given the ability to do so, and we do so, and we become more and more sanctified as we live the Christian life. If, 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 if we're committed to God's Word and prayer, we're committed to live the Christian life, You're continually renewed as you study God's Word and as you spend time with Him in prayer. Put your text in verse 24. The NAS says, And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Again, I think the Holman Christian Standard Bible captures the truth, this truth better. It says, You put on, you, this has already occurred, the new self, the one created according to, the, to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. Again, I keep pounding this over and over. This is a positional truth. You have, if you are in Christ, you have put on, you have put on the new self. It's occurred. It's an heiress tense. It's an heiress passive, actually. Heiress middle, I'm sorry. Past tense happened already. You have been made new. You are a new creation in Christ. The verb tense for created is, is again an heiress passive. Uh, you can think of it as the English past tense. It is something that has happened before. It's passive in that it happened to us. We had nothing to do with this act. This is creation language. We, we God created and it points us back to the creation narrative. In Genesis 1.26, Moses says that God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. God created us in his image and his likeness for the purpose of serving and glorifying him. We were made to be image bearers of the Holy One. In Genesis 2.7, Moses says that the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. God created us, and he breathed life into us. 
These are critical passages, passages to understand how God made us and who we were intended to be. We were intended to serve Him. He's the one who's given us life. But Genesis chapter 3 records that the image of God was corrupted when sin entered the world through Adam. He no longer possessed the pristine image of God. Our minds became futile. Our understanding was darkened. We were excluded from the life of God. The very life that God has given us, we were excluded from it. But praise be to God, what Adam lost, Jesus regained by His righteous life, His sin-atoning death, and His death-defeating resurrection. As Christians, as Christians, you are no longer to be associated with the old man, Adam. But you are to be associated, you are in the new man, the perfect man, Jesus, the righteous one. God being rich in mercy has saved us and he, and he breathed his, the Holy Spirit into us. You remember Genesis chapter two? That God breathed life into us. He, when he, when we're born again, he breathes the Spirit into us. He made us a new creation. We have been recreated. We have been born again in the likeness of God. We have been given newness of life. Second. Corinthians 5, 17-21 captures this beautiful truth, especially 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. They're done. Behold, new things have come. Again, you see this, this truth that we've been made new. Remember last week I said you were here that as Christians you were on mission? According to John 17, Jesus sent us into the world to bear witness of him. We have been sanctified. We have been sanctified by God through His Word to testify of His grace to the nations. Well, that's the truth in Second Corinthians five eighteen to twenty one. He's reconciled us and He's given us the ministry of reconcil- reconciliation. We're now ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. But there's a tie, right? In order to be effective ambassadors, we have, to, we're, we have to represent the king. We do represent the king. And the king desires for us to walk in holiness. The king desires us for, for us to love him. And the king desires for us to love others. We can't get around it. We're called to walk righteously. But we can't miss... The fact, and I think this is the, the point in verses 23-24, when we were saved, God made us holy. He, in a very real sense, our holiness is a work that God has already accomplished in us. Scott Hubbard, interestingly enough, there was an article I saw this this past week. Scott Hubbard said this, the Desiring God article. <clears throat> he said this, for... For holiness is not the prim- primarily the prize at the finish line. For holiness is not primarily the prize at the finish line of the Christian race. It is the gift at the starting line. Before we run for more holiness, God wants us to rejoice in the holiness that is already ours in Christ. Our deepest confidence and highest boast before God lie not in our personal holiness, but in the one whom we are united by faith. End quote. Beloved, our deepest confidence 
and our highest boast is that we are in Christ. We are in Christ. He, He did all the work. He redeemed us from the slave market of sin. We were doomed. Yet in Christ, there it goes again, in Christ, I want to keep saying that, in Christ, we have been made sons. Clearly, beloved, and I know you're thinking this, we can still struggle mightily with sin, right? This truth can be disheartening. Absolutely disheartening. We still can live according to the flesh. We fall back into sinful patterns of life. At times, we can walk as the Gentiles walk. We can act as if we are just sinful people. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, he says this, When God created day and night, He called the two of them together day. Every Christian is likewise a mixture of night and day, sin and holiness. It's the flesh, right? Yet Spurgeon writes, You like the day, take not your name from the evening, but from the morning. You are spoken of in the Word of God as if you were even now perfectly holy as you will be soon. End quote. Beloved, you are perfectly holy. And you will be, one day will be as you are. Church, you may struggle with sin. I, I do as well. Ask my wife. She'll tell you. She'll tell you more than you want to know. But in Christ, we have been made perfectly holy. We have put off the old self and put on the new self. It is happening, and we, are, we have been renewed to be able to understand the truths of God's Word, to understand who He is, and we're being continually renewed so that we would know it even more. Scott Hubbard observes of Charles Spurgeon's quote. He says this, The light in us may be small and mixed with much darkness still, but in Christ... The sun is rising, not setting. Next week we're going to look in verses 25 through 32 at some very specific commands that are consistent with holiness. As we approach those verses, we must do as Paul has done. We must remind ourselves of the truth that we are in Christ that Christ is our all and all. We are saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. Christ then becomes our everything. We must embrace Him. We must bask in Him. We must glorify Him. We must glory in Him. We must not start with the commands of the law lest we become like the Pharisees, right? We must believe the truth of God's Word. God desires for us to believe in the work of Christ. When we, were, when we believed, we were given the very righteousness of Christ, right? 
That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him a new no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I'm going to tell you right now. God is grieved when we don't trust him. When we don't trust that very righteousness that he's given us, God is grieved. John Owen says this. There's not anything that in our communion with Him, the Lord is more troubled with us for, if I may say so, than our unbelieving fears that keep us from receiving the strong consolation which He is so willing to give us. End quote. Church, if you are in Christ, you have been made holy. The, the old corrupted man has been taken off. We are constantly being renewed in our minds by the Word of God. We have been made a new creation according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of truth. We need to live according to those amazing truths. That's the foundation. Positionally. These are positional truths. We need to live practically according to them. Let us pray. Father our God, we thank You for this morning. Thank You for Your Word. May we trust You. May we understand who You've made us to be. You've placed us in Christ. You've made us holy in Christ. May we live in the constant renewal of our mind according to these truths. In Christ's name, amen.